Welcome to Boot Rap, the voice of the Bootstrap Network. The Bootstrap Network serves entrepreneurs around the globe. We're trying to understand the world, whatever we study. And if somebody tells me that it's bad to try to understand some subject, uh, that smacks of you know, some kind of bigotry. We are a group of artists in Austin and other, uh, other art professionals as well. And we are part of the Bootstrap Group, which is starting your business without venture capital, very simply stated, but mostly building your, your business organically based on direct feedback from, from your viewers or from, from people who are buying your work or paying you to do what it is that you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these artists are, are looking at experimental ways to get their work out there and uh, to, to be seen and to get their work sold. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> sounds, uh, you know, sounds like a very laudable enterprise. We, we like to think so. <laughs> um, great. Well, um, the, the very first thing that I really wanted to ask you, if you don't mind, um, could you give us your, um, your synopsis of your book so that we can kind of hear it directly from you about your findings when you were doing this research and writing this book? Okay, I mean, let me give you just a real simple view because I'm sort of more interested in finding out what you want it, the specific things you want to find out about it, you know, than me Great. giving a yeah. speech. But the basic idea is kind of very simple, which is just kind of, you know, in various ways. I mean, this was, this was a completely inductive empirical operation, but in various ways I kind of discovered that there are these two kinds of artists in the world. You know, I started by studying painters. Um, and the interesting thing was that the attitudes and the practices of the artists hook up with their life cycles. So that there are people who plan their work, and their work is about you know, expressing their ideas or about their emotions. And those are the people who do their best work generally when they're young. And then there are people who don't plan their work and actually who really believe that the most important thing is to make discoveries while they work. Those are the people I call experimental because, you know, it's, they, they work by trial and error. And those are the people who mature more slowly. I mean, those the, historically, those have been the people who do their most important work later in their lives. And, I mean, that's, that's the, the sort of the single central result. And then there, it turns out there are, lots, there are lots and lots of things that you discover when you start applying that analysis. Right. So, so in, in the two types of artists, the, the conceptualists and the experimentalists, they have a, a basically a, a two, there's a two-part um, story to what you're telling, which is the process and then the contribution. Yeah. So, so one has an early contribution, one, one potentially has a late contribution, and then there are certain processes and personality types that get that, that produce each of those t- types or styles. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, and it, it's, it's surprising how strong those correlations are. I mean, it's sort of funny because, I mean, I've, I've been tremendously annoyed. Art historians, humanists in general, just refuse to deal with this work because they say, oh, that's impossible. Well, it's, not only is it not impossible, it's just it's empirically true. I mean, these are facts. On the other hand, you know, it kind of surprises me how strong the correlations are. Right. Yeah, I, I was I was amazed when I was reading your book um, at how how I was thinking about how you must how excited you must have been um, having repeated 
support for for each of your previous findings based <laughs> on completely different data. No, you got it. I mean, it was. Uh, I work with one with one art historian. I mean, I've, we've been working together. I don't know, eight or nine years, Rob Jensen. And I now have a phrase for exactly what you just said. It's sort of the shock of recognition. Right. You know, every time I, I, I say, gee, this, you know, this works for poets and right. it works for novelists. And, and there are a number of you know, specific things. I, I think this. I could sense your glee when, 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 each, when you discovered every layer upon layer that fits so nicely around the outside of what you discovered before. No, it's, it's amazing. And, it, and, and the, the real, I mean, I get pleasure out of it. Because my view of scholarship has always been sort of implicitly that we're supposed to discover new things about the world. And I always sort of had this, you know, this intuition that the way you discover things about the world is by actually looking at the world. But I'm in a profession where people don't look at the world. They just sort of, you know, somehow intuit, um, you know, based on earlier research. And so I get a tremendous amount of pleasure out of the fact that I, I think I've really come up with a theory. But... In my business, people say, well, you know, theory is just, it's based on, you know, some kind of um, uh, analytical, deductive um, operation. I say, no, 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 you know, theories, you know, I teach my classes, you know, theories are empirical generalizations, and this just happens to be a generalization based on evidence. Right. So, so that leads me to, to um, my first question, uh, which is two-part for you personally. Um, why write this book? Where, where does your interest in art come from? And, and, the, and the second part of it is, um, how far do, you, do these economic methods or thinking, um, how do you think it will influence art history in the future? And um, is that even necessary? Do you think that it's, it's something that really needs to happen? Uh, why did I write the book? Because um, I thought it was by far the most interesting thing I could do. And... Um, you know, I was um, more optimistic then than now about other people agreeing with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, the thing, I mean, it, the trouble, I would love to talk for the next couple of hours about your first question, but that would mostly be me whining, <laughs> me, me complaining about how, you know, artists are refused. But, but the more serious thing here really does have to do with this question about whether the methods ought to influence art history, whether they will influence art history. And there are a couple of really interesting points here. I mean, one is that humanists hate this work um, in part because they think it's economics, and they think that economics is about money. Now, of course, any good economist will tell you that's not true. Economics is about all resources. I mean, money just happens to be one way that we facilitate, you know, the exchange of resources. But Economics is not just how we spend money, it's how we spend our time and, you know, who we spend our time with and what we do with our time. So, you know, I mean, there's this misunderstanding. Um, What an economist would say is that art historians use economic methods. They just use them implicitly and they use them very badly. (laughs) And so what I would argue is that the more consciously you do it, the better you can do it. And, you know, I mean, the methods I used in my book are hardly rocket science. You know, I mean, you talk about economic methods. In fact, they're more quantitative than economic. And quantitative, again, is, is almost too fancy a word for counting in most cases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, but 
But the older I've gotten, the more I've come to believe in general that the most important ideas are simple ones and yes. the most important methods are simple ones. And so, you know, I think it's tremendously important for, you know, for everybody to use any method that happens to be useful. You know, so obviously if, if we're studying novels, we should read the books and we should really, you know, we should go to experts on interpretation of, you know, the, the styles and the syntax of the writers, but we should also be open to quantitative analysis. Mm -hmm. Do you do you notice any people in the in the art historian, art curatorial world paying attention to what you're doing, or are you still getting a lot of resistance? Uh, yeah, in a word, no, none. Yeah, I mean, other than this guy Rob Jensen at Kentucky, uh, art historians have just absolutely ignored this work. Wow, it's surprising. It is disappointing. I mean, I had assumed that I would be having debates with art historians who were attacking the work. Um, I've completely lost respect for art historians. I think this generation of art historians has simply no intellectual curiosity. The only respect I've gained for them is that they've done something that's even more effective than debating, which is ignoring. <laughs> Basically, you know, if you just completely ignore work, then you know, uh, nobody hears about it. Mm. Um, of course, that's like the la la la, not listening. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's sort of like the sound of one hand clapping. I mean. I like to believe that the reason the art historians haven't attacked my work is that they can't. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it, it comes to the same thing. I mean, no, nobody's been reading debates about my work because there haven't been any. <laughs> so the one interesting thing to me is, you know, again, to get away from the whining and the self-pitying, is that there are some pragmatic people who have actually found my work very useful. And some of them are, you know, sort of really high-class people. Mm -hmm. You know, your group, for example, but, you know, also, for example, you know, there's some journalists like Malcolm Gladwell that's found my work really useful. Uh, yes, I, I've seen some reviews by Malcolm Gladwell of your work. I do want to mention, just in passing, um, briefly, uh, this is a group of art uh, artists and art, art um, professionals and people who support the arts, but we also do have our art historian in the audience who is... Uh, <laughs> They're all laughing now, but but uh, he's here in the audience and and is delighted to be here and and you. Well, I'm like, sure you know, be... I'd like to hear from him. I mean, yeah, I rarely talk to art historians. I re they rarely are willing to come to presentations. I was in London to give a presentation at a group of of um, mostly you know art curators, um, people who are sort of involved in art markets. There was one art historian there. He got up and walked out in the middle of my presentation, which I thought was just you know bizarre. So I would like to hear from your art historian. Well, he's on the phone right now. Go ahead yes. and say hello. Your wish is immediately granted. Uh, <laughs> my name is Joe Richter. I'm an art historian, uh, PhD candidate working under uh, Professor Richard Schiff at UT Austin and uh, under the direction of uh, Stephen McGee in the finance department. And I love your work. I think it is very important. I'm writing my uh, dissertation on a very similar subject, and I hope we'll have the opportunity to talk about that. I have experienced very similar things as you have because uh, the art historians generally say, well, if you do anything with economics, we don't have any. Anything. We don't want to have anything to do with you. Yeah. So I can very much understand your frustration, and I'm just sitting on the other side of the fence and want to uh, reach my hand over to your side. And no, I mean, congratulations I'm not going to disappointed to hear, uh, to hear your affiliation. <laughs> you know, the minute you say you're working with Steve McGee, then basically you're the null set. You know, I mean, yes. I've discovered 
art historians uh, simply never study economics, they never study statistics, and most of them have gone into art history because it's one of the very last places in our society where you can get away from systematic analysis. Yeah, and Steve McGee has been super supportive of my work. I couldn't have done it without him so far. Uh, you know, I, you should write to me about your work because I would like to hear about it. Yes, we will definitely be in touch, but I don't want to monopolize the conversation, and I really want to uh, you know, thank you again for, uh, for being in touch with us. And I might have other questions, but it would probably lead too far in, in this circle. But uh, I, know that, I know that all the artists that are here, you know, they see themselves as entrepreneurs as much as as artists. And, and every artist has economical realities to deal with. And actually, the, the creation process of art is an economic process, too. So, so I think those are the uh, parallels that, uh, that art and economics it's, it's have, and that and should make our conversation stemming from this quite interesting. No, it's absolutely true, and that's why artists have always known this. I mean, I, actually, I wrote a paper called Artists in the Market. Artists have always, always, always worked for money. Everybody knows that. It's just that until fairly recently, I mean, actually until the second half of the 20th century, there was this kind of social taboo, and artists had to pretend that they weren't interested in money, so they could only voice that interest in public, in private. Sorry, um, Andy Warhol has changed that, and so people like Jeff Koons and Damien Hirst can actually come out and say, no, you know, the more money, the better. But that's still a kind of a risky strategy for, for artists. But, you know, I, I have to say, Artists, as opposed to art historians, have generally been a lot more interested in my work. I mean, when I talk to groups of artists, there are always some people who come up afterwards and say, you know, that's, you've just told the story of my life. And these are almost invariably experimental artists who are having a very, very tough time in today's art market, which privileges conceptual innovation. So, Till, before you get off the phone, um, I'd like to ask a question of the two of you coming, coming at the same concepts from two very different um, viewpoints or, or schools of thought. And I want to know why. Why are the art historians in your mind uh, so resistant to the idea of, of thinking of economics as a part of the big picture? Dr. Galenson gets the first take, of course. Well, you know, you first. I mean, I've spoken to very few art historians. They just have refused to speak to me. So, I, I mean, I, I have a lot of conjectures about this, but very little evidence. Well, okay. So, my thing is that, of course, there is a slightly Marxist tendency among art historians. There is also an ivory tower tendency saying art is about aesthetics and about, you know, the interpretation, and money will only taint this. So as soon as we talk about money, we do something impure, basically. And uh, so, so this, especially if we are trying to quantify value or to qualify value in terms of what makes an artwork worth X amount of money. So, so that's, uh, that's uh, basically my side on that. I find this terribly interesting because I, find a, I sell art for a living. I basically um, try to engage people in, in buying art rather than buying something that goes with their sofa, crate and barrel. It's kind of <laughs> my elevator speech. But, but what I find repeatedly among art customers who are not savvy with a gallery or a museum or art history is that they're terribly intimidated, and usually the intimidation comes on the money side of it yeah. because they're nervous they're going to buy something that's not worth anything. And so the average art customer is completely over-preoccupied with the cost of the art and what it might gain for them in the future rather than buying something they like. And, and so it seems like each piece, the, art, the curator, the historian, the gallery owner, 
and and the artist and the buyer are all on like opposite sides of the court, sort of staring and pointing at each other, not knowing which way to go. Is that a good analogy? It just seems like there there isn't a good a good common area for people to have this discussion where where they're not um, intimidated by what they don't know. No, it's, I mean it's absolutely true, and there, there's there's a there's a whole sort of vector of attitudes that I think goes back to the Renaissance. I mean, in the early Renaissance, artists, uh, visual artists, were simply members of artisan guilds, craft guilds. You know, Brunelleschi was actually imprisoned at one point because he, he was late on his payments to the, to the, um, the construction workers' guild. Um, but he got out of jail because one of the Medicis intervened. And over the course of the Renaissance, artists were elevated. Their, their fees went up. They ceased to be artisans. They ceased to be guild members. And that's when there actually are these manuals for artists that were written during the Renaissance about how to behave. And basically, artists were supposed to behave like the aristocracy or the nobility. They were supposed to um, make money in private, but they were supposed to appear to be like scholars and gentlemen in public. And art was supposed to be this sort of mystical thing that would be demeaned if you discussed it in monetary terms. And these attitudes have persisted um, until the present. And so people are tremendously intimidated by art. Uh, can I say something? It's, it's, yeah, it's, my name is Roy James, and I'm a painter, and, and uh, I, I love this conversation. And one of the uh, – this uh, saying that I heard once, which is one of my favorite things, is when bankers get together for dinner, they talk about art. When artists get together for dinner, they talk about money. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's so true. I mean, uh, artists are keenly aware of, you know, the market factors of, of their work. And, you know, one of the things in this conversation I'm aware of is there is this sort of mythology of what the artist is supposed to be in society. And, you know, a lot of the sort of Van Gogh myth of this troubled, um, disturbed personality who's, who's painting just out of passion and, yeah. you know, it's not selling any work and is mutilating his body and, um, and, you know, his work's not valuable. Nobody discovers how brilliant he is until he dies. But there's something of that that people... You know, I think that markets want to preserve. It's part of this sort of mystical aspect of selling a work of art. And, and you know, I think it's, it's just, you know, it's just uh, a spin is all it is. It's a spin on, you know, uh, who that artist is and, and why it's valuable. And, and I think artists sometimes actively take part in creating their own myths. Um, and I think that's an, another reason that people shy away of, of wanting to have this conversation about, uh, the com- the economic factors of what makes an art artist actually important. You know, I think it sorry demystifies the mythology. And but you know, and, uh, there's a tremendous irony in that because you know you read Van Gogh's letters, and of course he was constantly thinking about how to sell his art more effectively. Right, and it is it's ironic, but the the mythology is he suffered. You know, he was he he suffered and and uh, and he, and he persisted because he couldn't do anything else. And, uh, you know, people buy the mythology as much as they buy the artist, you know. And um, I, I just think that that's another reason that people, they, they want to preserve certain mythologies that, that make things work. And I think art historians have their own mythologies about art that they want to preserve. Um, and uh, when you start reducing things to uh, just plain facts, you know, um, charts and facts, and I think people, it scares people. 
I, you know, I think you're right, but but you know, the the only exception I would take to what you just said is you're talking about artists preserving this myth. Some of them, yes, but some of them clearly no. You know, again, Van Gogh made no secret of the fact that he was tremendously concerned with selling his art. He always had schemes, you know, about how he and his brother could set up an artist cooperative and sell their work. I mean, he did suffer, but it's because he was unsuccessful. You know, to, to, to glorify his suffering is like glorifying people who are, you know, dying of hunger in the ghetto. You know, they're not doing it by choice, right? And when you say artists want to preserve these myths, there are a lot of artists who don't want to preserve these myths. I mean, not just famous ones like Jeff Koons or Damien Hirst, but obviously you, right? A lot of artists are perfectly comfortable talking about art um, like other commodities. But, but somehow, it seems to me, um, it ha- you know, this attitude has to be broken down that artists are, you know, some kind of priests and, you know, that art is some kind of a religious object. It, it isn't. You know, there was a time when art was used in the service of religion, but that's very rare today. You know, but, but people are just tremendously intimidated by it. And I think, you know, it, it's part of the problem with trying to get across a lot of these results about art. I mean, I, I come up with results for art markets that, that it would be very standard for other commodities. But my colleagues treat them with great suspicion because somehow art's different from other commodities. It really isn't. Well, it seems that once it enters into that economic arena, especially the, the highly valued artists, it absolutely is. It just becomes another investment like IBM or, or Dell or something like that. But, you know, from the artist's perspective of listening to you and, and uh, talking about the breaking down of mythologies, you know, as a painter, that, that is imbued in what I do and, and how I live. And, you know, there is a sort of connection with, with the mysticism. And it's hard for me to, to think of uh, what I do in purely economic terms. At the same time, I've been very successful at selling my work and have been supporting myself entirely for over 10 years now. And so I know that there's, a, there's an aspect of who I am that's very aware of uh, markets and, and uh, creating an identity and, and uh, that sort of thing. But at the same time, the, the act of creating the work is still something that's a sacred experience for me. So, but, but see, I would say that there's a real problem in there's a, there's a caricature in this rhetoric because you talk about purely economic or, you know, or spiritual. There's no such thing as purely economic. I mean, I regard my work as spiritual. You know, I, I think it really. I mean, I get as as you know, um, as I guess Marcy said in the beginning, I get tremendously excited about this work, and not simply because it's making me money. This work is hardly making me money. It's making me less money than any other research I could do right now. Right? I, could, I could make a lot more money doing consulting or you know, working on labor markets. Um, there's no such thing as purely economic. On the other hand, there's no such thing as purely non-economic. You know, there are very few people who do things that have no intention of communicating, communicating with other people. The minute you communicate with other people, that's an economic transaction. Again, not necessarily involving money, right? But, Economics you know, is about the allocation of forces. The way you're revealing things is kind of, let's say, uh, somebody revealing that the, the world's not flat. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that that terrifies, you know, and they sort <laughs> of rise up against it. And, and that's all I'm, I'm saying. I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. I'm just trying to, you know... Uh, point out one possibility of why there's resistance to your, your work. Yeah, you know, I mean, you, 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 you're sort of getting close to a journalist once said to me, you know, the, the, 
the art historians are afraid you're going to demystify their subject or demythologize it or whatever. And, you know, my reaction is I, I was trained that knowledge was good in every subject. You know, nobody ever told me that there were certain disciplines in which knowledge was a dangerous thing. Yeah. Oh, hello? Yes. yes. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, you know, it, it's, I heard my name whispered. I'm sorry. I, I can't think of anything beyond that. You know, it's simply my view is that we're trying to understand the world, whatever we study. And if somebody tells me that it's, that it's bad to try to understand some subject, uh, that smacks of some kind of, you know, some kind of bigotry I, that I don't understand. Yeah. Marcy has some more interesting questions on her right, side. Right, and I, I, I think we've sort of done this, and I'm really more interested in talking about the book now and, and what, what you were bringing up. Okay, so um, I want to just kind of re-encapsulate what, uh, what the difference is, kind of simply uh, between the two types. Uh, the conceptualist being, being the, the, the person who wants to get their message across, has a specific technique for doing so, plans their method of attack, executes, and then, and then they move on to the next thing, being the conceptualist. Exactly. And then, um, and then they, they tend to be the people who have the, the impact young in their lives yep. and, and their artistic careers, or yep. maybe not even necessarily their lives. Um, and then the other, the other side of it, which is the old master, which is someone who has a more nebulous approach to their work, doesn't really have a solid goal, but, and, and, and so because of that, never, never feels a sense of completion or uh, completely satisfied, and they tend to focus on honing and crafting a particular skill for many, many, many years, and their, their major impact comes late in life. Exactly. So, so from thank you. So from these two, um, what with this book, how can an artist, say someone who's sitting listening to this conversation, use this information to their advantage, or can they? And what what can they do with it, basically, in your mind? I think you can. I mean, and there's sort of different levels. At a very general level, uh, the first thing you want to understand, you want to recognize is whether you're conceptual or experimental. And I think everybody basically does, you know, from a very early age. And then the advice you give to the people is very, very different. I mean, I think in, in our society in general, in a lot of disciplines, everybody sort of gets the conceptual advice, you know, work on a lot of different subjects and, you know, get results quickly. And that's fine if you're conceptual, but it's exactly the wrong thing to do if you're experimental. If you're experimental, you want to you want to play to your strengths. You want to you know build on uh, the the subject or the, or the approach that that you're most comfortable with, and don't try to compete, you know, with the conceptual people. I mean, it's it's like the difference between marathon runners and sprinters, and the marathoners are going to be in a whole lot of trouble if they try to be, if they try to become sprinters. They're not going to be very good at it, and. Um, I mean, they're not going to be good sprinters, and they're, they're not going to improve themselves as marathoners. You know, so I, I actually, uh, I, I, have a, I have someone in, in, in mind where um, Da Vinci, yeah. I see him as, as a great experimentalist, though so he would be an old master. Absolutely. He seems to have crossed many, many boundaries of many different disciplines and many different practices and, and has exceeded most people in, in each of those fields. So was he just phenomenal, or, or does he sort of break the mold of, of even a normal experimentalist or old master? 
I don't think he really breaks the mold in the sense. I mean, obviously, you can, I mean, in today's world, we live in a much more, in a, in a, in a world in which many, many disciplines are much more highly developed, and you cannot get to the frontiers of as many disciplines as you could when da Vinci was working. Uh, but he took a consistently experimental inductive approach to everything he studied. Mm-hmm. Which, again, is, you know, is, I believe the same thing will be true now, you know, so that if an experimental painter does sculpture, that person will take an experimental approach to sculpture. Or if they take up physics, they'll be, in it, they'll be experimentalists rather than theorists. It's just that, I mean, that immediately sounds ridiculous, right? Because it's, it's almost impossible in today's world to start studying physics at the age of 30 or 35 or 40, right? Because so many people have started at the age of 15 or 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, again, we live in a much more specialized world. But to the extent that people do work in, in a number of different disciplines, um, I predict that they'll, be, they'll take the same approach, either you know, if they're experimental, they'll be inductive in all, or if they're conceptual. I mean, obviously, the conceptual people are more likely to, to be able to cross these boundaries because um, some conceptual people can, you know, can come to a, a result in one discipline and say, I'm going I'm to do something completely different. Would you consider them repeated conceptualists? Like, um, or would you, or serial conceptualists, or would you consider them once they've mastered many different things and have continued on? Would you consider them an old master? No, I mean, see, the, the thing—I don't have a lot of examples of this, but the idea here is that I call people old masters not because they're old, but because it's taken them a long time. Yeah. To in working in some activity to make a contribution, the people who actually do change disciplines generally make, the conceptual ones, generally make their contributions to those disciplines very quickly after entering that discipline. And this is not about aging. I mean, this is not a physiological, you know, this isn't about hardening of the arteries. This is about hardening of habits of thought. So, so, so the, someone could be, become an artist at the age of 40 and, and make an innovation and, and change the face of art forever and be considered a young genius. That person is effectively named Vincent van Gogh, yeah. I mean, he's not at 40, but I mean, he didn't really begin painting until he was in his 30s mm-hmm. and then made his contribution very quickly. And in fact, made it really even more quickly than it appears because he spent five years not actually understanding art. I mean, it really wasn't until he went to Paris that he entered the activity of advanced art. If he'd remained in Holland, uh, he never would have become an important painter. Right. So I'd like to interject here. My name is Anthony Campbell. I'm an intellectual property attorney. And I have, the question I have is, what, what does your work have towards those who are conceptualist and are able to quickly make a breakthrough? Uh, what, what are the implications for the life works of that person? Does it somewhat imply that by, if they've already made a breakthrough, they should move on rather than perhaps dilute the supply of their works? Yes. Yeah, see, the... There's a very common pattern in, I think, almost every intellectual activity. You make some discovery early, and then you basically recycle that for the rest of your life. And the reason you do that is that you're famous for it. You know, so you've got a professorship at Harvard, or you know, you've got it. If you're a painter, you've got a dealer, and you can just sell infinite numbers of, you know, fill in your your favorite conceptual artist's name. The more dangerous thing to do is to switch to some radically different activity where you don't have established habits of thought, and it's more dangerous because you may fall on your face. Switch, you can switch within your discipline. I have a colleague. I actually took the terminology from a colleague of mine who, early in his career, 
invented a new approach within macroeconomics that eventually won him a Nobel Prize. Um, sometime thereafter, he switched to a completely different problem in economics. I mean, so different that he couldn't use the same analysis that he used for his earlier work. He may be the first person to receive two Nobel Prizes in economics, but an interviewer a few years ago asked him, you know, you were the world's greatest expert on subject X. Why did you switch to subject Y? And he said, I didn't want to get stuck in a rut. And that's exactly what you're talking about. You know, it's more comfortable to be stuck in a rut, and people keep, you know, a lot of people keep telling you how brilliant you are, but if you're realistic, you could say, well, gee, you know, I've really made the contribution here. Maybe I could make a great contribution elsewhere. And it takes a lot of courage to do that. Are we ready to move to the next question? Yes. Great. Okay. So um, let me just look at my notes here. Do we? Uh, you you talk in your book about how conceptualists seem to have much more impact on on the world of of art and and the other artists around them. Is it because of the of the time um, between the innovation and the effect on the the community is shorter, or or is it because overall they've been more innovative than the old masters? Well, see, I don't think it's really true that they have a greater impact. There have been more of them, and the 20th century has privileged them. It's sort of, you know, it, it given them an advantage. But, for example, I mean, I was just reading today, you know, Clive Bell's book, After Cezanne. Cezanne was simply the most influential artist of his time. Every important artist of the next generation had to deal with his work. Um, of course, Cezanne didn't know that because he was dead. Mm. And, I mean, and, you know, and there's an irony there because, of course, what made Cezanne the most influential artist of his generation was Fauvism and Cubism, both of which he would have absolutely hated. You know, so influence is a curious thing. On the other hand, I don't think it's necessarily the case that the conceptual people are more influential. It's just that under conditions that have largely existed for the last century or so, there's very, very high demand for innovation. Mm -hmm. conceptual people can make more rapid innovations and then give way to some other, you know, uh, young genius who can make another contribution. The experimental people have a, are at a tremendous disadvantage. Do you, do you think that our modern times of, short, of what they say are short attention spans and moving from one technology to the next are creating young geniuses who might have been old masters if they'd been given more of an attention span on their career? No, I don't think that people choose... Uh, the way they work. I, you know, I was with you until, uh, until your last, until the last phrase. Well, what a, let me rephrase it. Um, do you think that that because of the public's short attention span about what's what a particular artist is doing and the way that they may jump to the next innovator to the next innovator that they cease to pay attention to someone who is later contributing great works? Yes. Yeah, and and we know that. You know, we don't know about all of the potentially important experimental artists who died before they, their work became known or who became discouraged and gave up art before they become, became known. But for example, you know, we can point to some of the greatest artists alive today. Case in point, Louise Bourgeois, 96 years old, right now is recognized clearly. I mean, you know, recognized very, very widely one of the greatest sculptors in the world. She was not discovered by the art world until she was 70 years old. She had, an, she had a show at the Museum of Modern Art. She'd been around New York. She'd been showing for decades. Um, but she was just considered as, you know, sort of a, a very... I mean, she's the same age as Jackson Pollock. 
right? And he's been dead for, what, about 50 years? Yeah. Um, if she hadn't lived to a ripe old age, uh, we never would have heard of her. She's right. done her greatest work, actually, after the age of 80. <laughs> Somebody thinks that's a great thing. <laughs> well, I, I plan to do my greatest work after the age of 80, actually. So my, my next question for you is, is whether or not you think that there's a third way where someone could, could integrate these, these two paths and, and possibly live both lives. And I wanted to give you an example. Um, there were a couple of examples in discussion earlier tonight. One is Eric Clapton, and one would be Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright, where Eric Clapton was, was really on the young genius track. He was going to burn out and probably die young, when, and he was very celebrated when personal tragedy struck, and then he seemed to completely course direct, uh, redirect and go on and now um, con continue to be more and more respected as a musician and innovator and have more effect on, on young guitar players now. And he seems to have kind of lived both life, both, both patterns of an innovator. Uh, Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, Clapton I'm not sure about. I don't know enough about his career. Um, there have been a few artists that I know of who may... See, there are a number of artists who change from being conceptual to being experimental mm -hmm. um, or vice versa. There have been very few who've made important contributions in both approaches. I mean, Cezanne started his career assuming he was supposed to be conceptual. He made preparatory drawings for his works. He made these paintings that you've probably seen. You know, they look like, I don't know, they look like bad courbets, you know, or yeah. bad Delacroix. Then he discovered Impressionism through Pissarro, and that's when he became a great painter, you know, after several decades. So, I mean, there are a number of people who start one way and turn the other. I mean, um, Paul Signac was exactly the opposite. He started his career painting with the Impressionists, not making preparatory drawings. Then he was introduced to Georges Seurat, and he discovered that he really had wanted to be conceptual all along, and then he became a very important conceptual painter. So there have been a number of people who changed. There have been very few who made important contributions in both types. There have been a few. Um, Jacques, Alberto Giacometti made important surrealist sculptures as a young man that were clearly conceptual, and then he became a very great experimental sculptor in old age. I would disagree with you about Frank Lloyd Wright, because I really believe that he was an experimental artist his whole career, mm -hmm. um, in the sense that both his early, I mean, he was visual, he did have these principles. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing, I've just written a paper about architects. I assumed that all of these 20th century architects, you know, Le Corbusier, Mies van der Rohe, uh, Gropius, Frank Lloyd Wright, I assumed they were all conceptual because they all wrote these social manifestos. But it turns out that was just sort of in the air. And most of them actually didn't apply those manifestos to their work. And Wright's manifestos, you know, his early principles, if you really look at them, they're visual. I mean, you know, that a house should appear to grow naturally out of its sight. So the prairie houses were very much visual. You know, I mean, Roby House, you know, it's, it's, it's horizontal and it's, you know, it's like the prairie. And then the late work you know, is based on development of the same principles. I mean, I was just reading a really fascinating article about what makes falling water so effective. And it's a, let's see, where is the, um, it's, it's the diagonal axis. There's a guy named Neil Levine, or Neil, Neil Levine, who wrote an article about this, um, who traces the use of this diagonal axis 
from Roby House on, and it becomes more and more extreme. And so Wright becomes sort of master of this diagonal form of organization where, you know, there, I mean, falling water is a whole bunch of rectangles, but they don't line up with each other. They're, they're, you know, they're offset. And that's this diagonality. And, and sort of, it's a sort of an interesting thing. It's complicated, but Wright has developed that very gradually over decades and decades incrementally. So, I mean, there's no reason in principle why you can't change. It's just, you know, um, the, the, the problem is you don't choose to be good at mathematics or to be good at chess. You know, you either are or aren't, as far as I can tell. Um, so it's almost like they discover their path maybe a little bit later after they've ex experimented with different kinds of things, and then they're like, ah, this is where I need to be. And then they zoom on. You, you, you know, it's, it's, it's discovering your path is right. I mean, but you can discover it at any age. It's just, I mean, there are all these, these, these chance events. You know, Virginia Woolf is an example that I've been reading a lot about recently. And she was, you know, she, she was sort of typical in the sense, see, conceptual people have this clarity. You know, they discover that they're good at math. or They discover that they're wonderful draftsmen. You know, that, I mean, Picasso was a prodigy. The experimental people very often, they discover that they're not good at anything uh, or that they're not facile at anything, but they're sort of unhappy, vaguely unhappy with the current. I mean, Virginia Woolf was always a good writer, but she trained herself to become a great writer. She wasn't a great writer early. It didn't come naturally to her. You know, I mean, she's sort of, she's, a, she's kind of a really interesting case, an extreme case. She's like Cezanne in the sense these people did only one thing their whole lives. I mean, Virginia Woolf, you can document her life day by day because when she wasn't writing a novel, she was writing letters or writing essays or talking to people and then writing in her diary about it. And, you know, basically, all of her life, she wrote about people. And when she wasn't practicing writing about people by actually using a pen and paper, she was learning about people by talking to them. And that's essentially all she did in her life because her goal in life was just to write better and better about people. And she kind of knew that her whole life. It just took her a while you know, to figure out that that was the only thing she was ever going to do. Interesting. Yeah, it's, almost, it's like, like you said in the beginning, um, a, a, one of the greatest gifts is, that, is for someone to recognize what they are and, and to kind of feed that particular talent or a particular bent on, on the, your creativity or innovation style. That's, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, I, I really believe the, the better you understand what your talent is, um, the better the chance you have to develop it. So, David, what I want to do now is go ahead and open the, the um, discussion up to the rest of the group and, and have them ask any questions that might have arisen through our discussion. And I want to thank you so much, and we'll talk shortly. It's a real pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Anyone have questions? Go ahead and just pick up the phone or... Hello? Yes. So are, are you an old master or a young genius? Oh, no. You know, I don't know whether I'm an old master, but I'm clearly... Introduce yourself, get... Josh. Oh, this is Joshua Sampson. I'm an artist. I'm, I'm in a heavily conceptual discipline. I mean, economics, um, you know, is taught axiomatically. And as a result, I almost didn't become an economist. I mean, actually, in today's world, I couldn't. I haven't taken enough math to get through a graduate program today in economics, and I wouldn't want to because, you know, economics has become so technical. Um, but for years and years, 
I sort of understood this work intuitively before I started to do research on it because, I mean, I just saw all these conceptual guys, you know, writing, writing these great dissertations and getting, you know, instant promotions. And I kept thinking, you know, that's obviously not what I do, but, you know, um, when am I going to do, you know, when am I going to catch up to these guys? And I haven't caught up yet, but I got to say, you know, the, um, the direction it changes the right way. I mean, this is clearly the best work I've ever done in my life. Um, you know, if I told you about my early work, it was really good work on a really narrow subject. And I, I didn't understand, you know, I mean, experimental people don't understand. Conceptual people have this, this, this advantage in the sense there's this clarity. They do tend to find their path earlier in, in Marcy's terms. Um, experimental people just sort of have to keep trying, you know, and, and persevere. And, and um, so I've always known I was inductive. Old master, you know, in the sense of accomplishment, that's something, you know, you don't know till afterward, but I hope. Um, it's uh, Roy again. Um, I guess my question was about, you talked about how conceptual artists have uh, an advantage because, they, you know, they, they have much more clarity and, and the experiment, experimental artists tend to be I guess insecure in a lot of ways, or, or and you refer to them as unhappy, and um, uh, but yet um, sometimes uh, though a conceptual artist has great success early in their career, they absolutely fade out and you know uh, don't have anything to say after those initial great successes. Yes. and so that would to me imply also a disadvantage to them. Um, well, could you, could you make some comments? Do you, do you agree with that or not? Or, or? No, I agree absolutely. But I've, I've often wondered about that, you know, because there's obviously a lot of room for self-delusion in this world. If, if I see people, you know, not just artists, but, you know, scholars who, who do enormously important work early, uh, you know, you're an artist. Is Jasper Johns happy or unhappy? Does he know he hasn't done anything of any importance in, in probably 50 years? Probably not. Maybe he, he does. He's exactly the, the, he's the example I was thinking of, you know. I think he sold a piece a few years ago that was the highest paid for a living artist and something like $5.5 million. For, but it was a piece that he did in the, the 1950s. Oh, you know, you go to the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and there's a whole room of his first show from Castelli's gallery, but there's none of his later work. Now, does he, you know, I've often wondered, is he secretly unhappy? Or, you know, I mean, guy's rich and famous. He owns an island in the, in the Caribbean. Um, I don't know. I mean, some of those people obviously become enormously frustrated. I don't know if you've ever, ever read um, Joseph Heller, who was, you know, an obvious case of a one-hit wonder, which is an extreme version of a young genius, right? He wrote one famous book and could never really write another one. His last book, which I think was actually published posthumously, was called something like, uh, oh, God, what was the title of it? Confessions of an Old Novelist or something, or... I can't remember the title, but it was, it, was a, it was very thinly veiled autobiography about a novelist who had written a very famous novel when he was young, had never written another of any importance, and was just tremendously blocked in trying to write a new novel. And periodically, he, because he was famous for his early work, he would get invited to go give speeches at colleges, and his speech was about how essentially every writer ends up depressed. Now, you know, a lot of conceptual writers have ended up depressed, um, you know, and a number have committed suicide. I don't know whether the, the conceptual ones are, are more likely to end up depressed, more likely to commit suicide. I mean, this is something that nobody has studied because nobody's made this, 
division in the past. Yeah. You know, another one I think of is Stanley Kubrick, whose early films were just so brilliant, and then he disappeared for a long time, and then the the newer films that he was doing just didn't measure up. At least that was my feeling, you know. Oh, you know, there are just dozens and dozens of those cases. I mean, I was really struck. A year or two ago, Martin Scorsese won an Oscar. I think it was his first Oscar for directing. And here's this, you know, this old, you know, gray-bearded guy. And in honor of the occasion, three of his old friends came to, to give him the award. Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and the third would have been who? And, you know, Spielberg, you can argue about Lucas. There's very little question. You know, he did one enormously important thing at the very beginning of his career and never did anything else. And I can't remember who the third was. I mean, these guys are obviously burnt out, but... Again, since so many of them are rich and famous, you don't know whether they, whether they realize that they're burned out. I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. It's, it's not one that, that is very easy to get at, you know? Yeah, I, I have the sense that uh, Steven Spielberg is a very happy man. Do you know who Steven Spielberg's favorite painter is? Can you guess? No. He owns about 50 paintings by an American artist whose morality he endorses completely. Uh, Norman Rock. Don't say Norman Rockwell. You got it. Are you serious? <laughs> it, if, if that was a guess, boy, you're better than me. I never would have thought of it. No, it's, it's really hilarious because Steven Spielberg, you know, he's a conceptual director, and he says, you know, I don't go in for, for unsavory subjects. He said, I'm a father, and I would never make a movie that wasn't instructive for my children. And he loves Norman Rockwell. He owns 50 of his paintings. And he said, that's the kind of morality I subscribe to. Wow. That's the vision of the man. Uh-huh. Well, okay. There was one. Well, does anyone else want to ask a question? There's another comment I want to make. One of, one of my favorite parts of the book was when you were uh, discussing the sort of frustrations and um, the, the conflicts that arise between the two different types of artists. Yeah. Because they don't understand each other's work. Yeah. And I think you gave, as an example, Pissarro and uh, the way he was constantly criticizing Gauguin. Yes. And seeing him as, you know, somebody who, who was just, you know, uh, not producing anything of real value. Yes. And, and we talked earlier about how, it can, how this book can actually benefit artists now. And when, for me, I'm more of the experimental type. And, uh, and to defi- be able to just define myself that way and realize that as my career goes... My success really most likely is in the future, you know, um, and also that, that I shouldn't be comparing myself to conceptual artists because we think entirely differently. And so, uh, you know, eliminate the sense of jealousy that can occur or, or that sort of conflict. No, you know, I agree completely. It's very funny because um, there's, there's some, I've just finished writing a, a new book manuscript about 20th century art. And one of the conclusions of this thing is, is it sort of runs completely against, you know, what I would have said my views are. I mean, obviously, I mean, it, it's one of the conclusions is really about the art of the last 30 or 40 years, you know, sort of the, you know, the art that's been extremely successful. The art historians kind of throw up their hands and say, oh, pluralism, incoherence. It's not incoherent. It's just a bunch of conceptual innovators making these very irreverent, very sudden, very dramatic, and very, you know, publicity-seeking innovation. And the the older art historians are saying, well, this is just a bunch of crap. And, you know, I said, you know, you guys ought to know, you know, that not only, I mean, you're the idols 
of a lot of these art historians is Andy Warhol, right? But they're saying, oh, Damien Hirst is crap. Well, you know, of course, I re- I'm old enough to remember when Andy Warhol came, you know, when he came along in 1962, his work was just considered garbage, right? But if you go back further, you know, there's Pablo Picasso making these innovations in 1906, 1907, people saying this is just garbage. You know, the people who are denouncing Damien Hirst ought to at least have, they, ought, they should have, they should pause, you know, and say, Every important innovation, you know, of the last hundred years has been denounced as not only bad art, but really not art at all, the conceptual innovations. I mean, it, it, because it breaks the rules so dramatically. So, you know, you don't have to like it, but you should at least say, gee, you know, we're probably not in a position to judge this. You know, the thing we can see is whether it's influential or not. There's really no way of comparing the quality you know, of a Picasso and a Warhol and a Damien Hirst because they're changing the rules. Within their rules, their work is it's successful, it's influential, you know, but to judge Warhol or, or Hirst on their craftability is simply irrelevant. But that's what, you know, these critics are constantly doing. So, I mean, by way of agreeing with you, I agree completely there's no point for an experimental artist to compare his or her work to a conceptual artist because they're engaged in different activities. I mean, any more than it, it makes sense for me to compare my work to theoretical economists. That's just a different activity. But I think part of what we have to do is to recognize it's a different activity. It's not that we're inferior. You know, we're not doing the same thing. That's the problem. You know, it's, again, it's another problem that the experimental people very often are just regarded as doing the same thing as the conceptual people, just not as well. That's a misunderstanding. That's wrong. I have a question for you, uh, David. So, so with your, you, see, you have a great depth of knowledge of art history. Uh, I'm curious to kind of push that forward a little bit. And what, do you, what are you seeing happening now? Who's, whose art is, is considered crap now and that you think, if you've been keeping up on what's happening now in art, where, where is that headed? What, what might we see in the future? And where are people... Um, Con- kind of, kind of converging with this dialogue currently. Well, see, the the only way that I can say something useful about your statement is to say, you know, if we had a certain amount of money to invest, where would we put it? Because you know, once somebody has become Damien Hirst, obviously you're not getting any great deals, right? Or even once somebody has become Matthew Barney or Kahindi Wiley, they've already been discovered. So. A couple of years ago, I did this interview with a journalist, and he he interviewed another economist, and the economist said, well, this is interesting, but it really doesn't help us make money. And that's that's, that's the economist's very deflating comment always, you know, um, if this guy's so smart, why isn't he rich? And when I thought about it, if, if we were simply trying to make money, what we would try to do is to find artists where they have come from in the past. And there's a pattern, which is that great art doesn't come out of a vacuum. It's not made by an individual. I mean, in principle, today, with the Internet, um, you know, with all kinds of uh, reproduction, you could not only train yourself in art, you could train yourself in economics in, you know, in Alaska you know, or in Novosibirsk you know, by reading things or by looking at things on the Internet. But art... Great art and great economics has never been made that way. Um, great art and great economics has always come out of some center. It helps to have an important teacher, and it's absolutely indispensable, as far as I can see, I mean, just speaking historically, to work with a, with a, 
a talented group of your peers at sort of the graduate student phase. And I'm talking about artists as well. I mean, you know, from the Impressionists on, great artists come from groups. Um, you know, even small groups like Johns and Rauschenberg. Um, and there's an... Uh so, so, so to add to that a little bit, uh, we have quite a group of artists here who, who meet regularly and discuss art and also go to other meetings and things like that. But also, um, and that's happening currently here in Austin, but there's also the, uh, the, the art, the, the Texas, the University of Texas art movement from the 60s. Were, when you were here doing, I think you were here at some point, weren't you studying? Yes. Okay. Did you did you notice anything about that that movement here? What did you know about the the Texas modernism? I knew nothing about local art when I was in Austin. I was there 20 years ago, and I knew absolutely nothing about it. Um, but but this is the deal. I would look for some group of artists who are doing something, you know, something new. Now it's it in a funny way. It's easier to find the conceptual ones because they're more outspoken and they're more, you know, I mean, they're literally more verbal than the experimental ones. The problem with the experimental ones is they go through these groups, but then it may take them another 20 or 30 years outside the group to develop their art. I mean, it, I, mean I always use the example, Louise Bourgeois started teaching elementary school in, in Great Neck, Long Island, when she was 50 years old. Right? 20 years later, she had her first show at the Museum of Modern Art. If you'd bought her work when she was 50 or 60, you would be very, very wealthy today. But virtually nobody did that. The young people, say, coming out of Yale today, yeah, people are buying their work because Yale's been a consistent producer of important artists since the 60s. And so, you know, again, creating a new center is tougher. Yeah. So, um, but London, for example, became obviously, sort of came out of nowhere, you know, in the last 20 years. And now London is one of the great centers. So, you know, it's not easy to find these to find the right places, but, you know, that's the, that's the kind of structure you're looking for. You're looking for some group that has some new approach. So how does someone as an artist living today who's, who's trying to make a living on their art, since we're openly discussing that here today, um, how do you beat the art market? How do, you, how do you work around the edges? How do you look at the art uh, market as an, as an entrepreneur and, and see those spaces where you can edge yourself in or be on the cutting edge or even like guerrilla, guerrilla marketing of your work? Well, you know, you're, you're kind of hinting at it with the language you use at the end of your answer, because even if you're experimental, today's art world wants, for the most part, it wants conspicuous, dramatic innovation, which tends to be a conceptual thing. And so, you know, I mean, I've actually spoken to experimental artists who kind of recognize that what they've been trying to do is to appear conceptual, right? Mm. I mean, when you, when you use the word gorilla, you're talking about a conceptual tactic. And I so, know. you know, it's about, I mean, and I, look, I mean, I don't have to tell you. See, now, now, now this is where you're the expert and I'm not. You actually sell art and I don't. But you probably know, I mean, people are looking for, you know, exciting new things, right? Absolutely. And that tends, exciting and new tend to be, conceptual correlates. They don't tend to be experimental ones. Conceptual ones, experimental people have a tough time. You know, there's just no, there's no question. I mean, it's a, it's a problem and, it's, and it's, it's a problem that feeds on itself because experimental people don't get much attention. They get discouraged. They're not aware 
uh, that experimental people have been successful in the past. I mean, that's why partly what I think we have to do is just sort of make people aware that you can make important contributions late in your life by this sort of gradual incremental path. But most So of in your mind, after you've written this book and you've, you've done a lot of research, is there a third type of artist? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a whole continuum, but to me, there's the experimental conceptual. There are people, you know, at various places, you know, between those extremes, but I don't know what a, what a, you know, what a qualitatively third type would be. You know, in the sense that, to me, art either has a, either has a message or it's visual, you know? Right, that makes sense. Does anybody else in the group have a question? We have one. Hi, David. This is Jack Cowling. Hi. Hi. I have one question. Uh, this is sort of tangential, but I was wondering, what do you think about the trend in corporate America of hiring MFAs? You know, I think it's really, it's really interesting. Um, I, I know even less about business than I know about, about selling art. So I'm not sure what they do with those guys. Um, but I know there was a journalist I met in the course of doing this project named Dan Pink, who goes around, you know, making a lot of money out of giving lectures saying that the MFA is the new MBA. Now, that's an exaggeration, even from his vantage point. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly it's an interesting thing. You know, it's an interesting phenomenon. So um, to kind of wrap things up for you today, do you, um, do you have, uh, well, first of all, I'd like to ask you, is there anything that we haven't asked you that we should have? And, and also, if you have any questions for the group. Uh, is there anything you'd like to discuss that hasn't been brought up tonight? You know, I guess the, the thing that I'm always curious about is, you know, I mean, I don't have any precise questions, but sort of, you know, how hard is it being an experimental painter? The experimental painters I talk to, um, usually, you know, they, the, the problem seems to be there's kind of a vicious circle, that they have to take jobs teaching kind of full time. I mean, you know, when we teach, I teach, you know, one course a, a quarter, but these are people who actually teach studio like all day. And so the experimental people have this problem that they don't have enough time to develop their art. So I, I guess I'd be sort of curious to hear from some experimental artists about the problems of, you know, of selling your work. I mean, is, I take it as a matter of belief that conceptual people have a big advantage in today's art market. And I guess I'd be curious to hear some, some people react to that, whether they're conceptual or experimental. Does anyone have anything to say about that? Roy, Hank, anyone? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to address that. I, I think that I've experienced a, a, you know, a substantial amount of success in my career, but it's been regional. And, um, and a lot of times it's because people are looking for decorative pieces for their home rather than sophisticated art. Um, um, so, so there's obviously a market for, for you know, uh, work that, that I'm producing, but... When I really look at the large art market as a whole, I think even nowadays, being painter, just being a painter is kind of a disadvantage. Um, 
because, uh, you know, they talk about how it's been done as far as painting is concerned. People are just sort of reinventing the wheel again and again. And um, I think the most you can see, well, you know, someone like Gerhard Richter, who's in his mid-70s, I think, and, yes. and yes. he's selling, selling his work for millions of dollars. But, I mean, he is such an exception and really a minority in, in the contemporary art world at, at large um, so I, I just think that the, the contemporary art market is really, it really is designed for conceptual artists. Um, so it's just, I guess it's, it's just, when you see an artist really come through, like I was thinking Kahinde Wiley, you, you mentioned him. I don't know much about his career. I, I suspect he's kind of young, but I don't know why. I just think so. And, um, 32, okay. Somebody said he's 32. And, um, and his work, reminds me of, you know, a mature old master painter from the Renaissance. And, but see, that's you know, exact, I, it's exactly his gimmick. Yeah. Right? I mean, he had this very clever idea. So um, would you classify him as a conceptual artist oh, that absolutely. he's using that as his gimmick? Or oh, is he an established I mean, painter who's through his voice? Like, yeah. he, doesn't, he doesn't execute the paintings anymore. He's got about 30 people who make them. You know, he's got a factory. And, right. and they're all skilled craftsmen. But the idea was taking hip-hop kids from the ghetto and putting them in Renaissance compositions. Once you have that idea, you know, there are a lot of skilled artisans who can execute it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I see, I didn't know that. But um, I, I just, I do feel like the, the art market really is geared for quick, grandiose statements. And they, they generally come from uh, contemporary, I mean, uh, conceptual artists. And, uh, you know, I think that there's a way to be successful as an experimental painter, but it's not necessarily, you know, going to be up in the limelight of that, that art, particular art world. Uh, Who are the but, painters you know, that you admire? Huh? Who are the painters that you admire? I mean, you mentioned Richter. You like, I like I... Richter. I like Anselm Kiefer a lot. Um, Ross Blechner is one of my favorites. Um, you know, people like that are the people I respond to or, or uh, uh, the... Um, abstract expressionist movement. But, you know, I really love all, all I, you know, I love conceptual artists too. I think Damien Hirst is, is brilliant, you know, and, and uh, so, I mean, I, my, my mind is pretty open to all sorts of artists now. And I think that's more a product of just living in a, in a time where, where the, you're just flooded with so much that you can really explore. So, anyway, that's, that's all I have to say about yeah, that. Yeah, no, it's a, I mean, See, one of the things that you said that's interesting, I mean, it's, there's no question, this is, we're in this period, I don't call this pluralism or postmodernism, but there's clearly what I call balkanization. You know, people used to talk about the balkanization of labor markets. As workers get more specialized, labor markets get, they proliferate. And that's happened in art. I mean, you know, in 1900, if we'd been talking about art, we would have been talking about painting, maybe a few sculptors. But now, you know, there's video, there's installation, there's sculpture, and, and, and Damien Hirst, you know, say sculpture, that's not traditional sculpture. I mean, Rodin, Brancusi wouldn't have called that sculpture. So there's been this enormous proliferation of genres, you know, and the same thing, you know, you're talking about pop music before Eric Clapton. I mean, in pop music that's happened, and one of the implications of that has been that people say, well, these artists, you know, are not as important as they used to be because they have a narrower reach because of the balkanization. And again, that's a non sequitur. I mean, people, you know, they're working within these, these more specialized areas. But, um, yeah, I mean, any, any other artists want to tell me about, you know, which of my assumptions are wrong? Um, pretty quiet over here. 
<laughs> let, me, let, me ask, let me ask one final question. What objections did people have to things in my book? What did they think were wrong? You know, or the things I said this evening? I, I don't have much to object to. The, the hard thing for me, David, is, is working in my left brain, which is not a comfortable experience for me. And, uh, you know, I did talk to other artists who read the book who said it was a difficult read for them because, you know, charts and things like that are, are just kind of not the way our minds work naturally. And so that, that was the only thing. I, I really appreciated the things that you were bringing up, and it really sort of created a, a new way of seeing things for me. But um, that was the, the most difficult thing about the book for me was just getting through it. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, well, I'm going to go ahead and close the call. And um, thank you so much for, for spending your evening uh, talking with us and uh, to open an invitation for you to come down to visit us in Austin at any time. I'm sure we'll have a, a, a several people who are willing to, to put you up while you're here. And uh, uh, does anybody else have anything they'd like to say in closing? Thank you. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, let, me just, well, let me just say, if anybody, if, anybody has, if anybody has any other questions or comments, just, you know, you can email me. It's just gallinson at uchicago.edu, and I would, I would really be interested in hearing. I've mean, I, I got to say, this was a real pleasure. I mean, you guys were, were much more seriously interested than almost any audience that I've been asked to speak to. So, um, you know, I've, I've been a big fan of Austin, and obviously this has just increased my admiration for Austin. I, I will actually look forward to, you know, to visiting again. So thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, 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 David, this is Bajor. Thank you so much for participating with us. It was a well. pleasure. I, I really, you guys really worked this out well. I, I really <laughs> Well, you rock, and we, we, we'll, we'll, have to tr we'll have to make for a, a, your trip to Austin sometime in the near future. I, I look forward to it. <laughs> Awesome. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Boot Wrap. I'm Brian Massey. This content is copyright 2006 Bootstrap Network. All rights reserved. Our thanks to Charlie Crow and the Podsafe Music Network for our theme music.